love it when God just puts a service together, um, when God does exactly what He does, and that's always remain perfect and remain in His will. Um, that's today's message, is letting our, His light, letting His love shine through us. We're going to be in Acts today. We're going to be in Acts, <clears throat> and we're going to be in Acts chapter number 9. Acts chapter number 9 this morning. I'll be honest with you, this is a message that I have been yearning and eager to preach to the church for a long time. This was a message that God initially had put on my heart to preach at the Chattanooga Rescue Mission, and I did preach it there. Uh, but I believe it's something that Christians need to hear to now, today, more than ever, and it is right in the middle of our series. I've got uh, complete peace about preaching this today, complete peace, and uh, don't miss tonight either. I got so excited about tonight's message, I wanted to preach it this morning, you know, but it's not about what I want to preach, it's not about what I want to do, about what God wants. Um, so what we're, <clears throat> that's what we're going to do this morning. We know that last week we looked at the stoning of Stephen. We looked at the fact that God's man was killed. God's man was uh, tormented. God's man was stoned during that time. And they laid their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And we know that this Saul guy was not a very good man, was not a very good blessing, was not any kind of blessing for the church in any way, form, or fashion. For if we look back in chapter number 8, in verse number 3, uh, by way of review, it says, And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women and committed them to prison. We know this Saul, this man named Saul, was not a very good man, was not a very uh, influential, he was a very influential man, but he had nothing but negative to say, nothing but negative to do to God's people. All right, in, in Acts chapter number 9, we see, and this is not the meat of the message this morning, but we see the salvation and the conversion of Saul. We see the man that was once wreaking havoc of the church. We see the man that was once the one that was murdering Christians, that was arresting Christians, that was persecuting the Christians, the man that was on the complete opposite side of the church. Some of you may be in here today and you have no idea who Saul is. You have no idea who I'm talking about. I guarantee you this, if you were to go into this time period and you were to travel back and you were to ask any of the young Christians or any of the Jews who Saul was, it was a name to be feared. It was a name to worry about when Saul got your number, when Saul got your address, when Saul found out you were doing something for Jesus. It was not good news, but we know that as Saul was yet breathing out threatenings in verse number one, and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Here in the early parts of chapter number nine, we understand that Saul and the very act and the very persecution and the very action of going to haul off Christians to jail and the very action to go and persecute God's people. We see the salvation of this man. We see God, even though he was not looking for God, he was not going in any direction towards God. We see God come to where he was, meet him on that Damascus road, put him on his face before the holy and righteous light and save him by his grace. We see Saul immediately understand who saved him and who it was that was calling out his name for when he fell down on his face. He said, Lord, what must I do? Lord, he admitted immediately of what had taken place. Then we see God tell him to get up and go into that city. And we see him meet Ananias. We see him use Ananias to remove the scales from uh, Saul's eyes. We see him use Ananias to be the messenger in which the task that Saul would be given would be taken place. So we see the salvation of this wicked, evil man. 
And then our text, stand with me as we read in verse number 19. We see the salvation of Saul, this wicked, evil man. And then in verse number 19, here's what happens next. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days when the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed him, which said, It is not called on his name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel. What are they going to do? Kill him. But there laying await, it was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Verse number 27, I want you to read these first two words with me. But Barnabas. One more time. But Barnabas, and again, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus the name of Jesus. And that's the thought I want to give you this morning is but Barnabas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Thank you so much for your people. Thank you so much for this service already. God, your presence has been felt here. God, I pray that as the preaching of your word begins, as you seek to do what you do best, and that is use your word to speak to hearts and to speak to souls. God, I pray for each and every one in here, whether they be saint or sinner. God, I pray that you work a change in their heart, that you demand a decision, that you call forth under repentance. And I pray and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. So we see immediately the salvation of Saul was not a basket of roses for Saul. As a matter of fact, Saul was the very guy in the basket. All right, He had to be let down out of those city walls in a basket. He had to go on a run. He had to go on an escape. When somebody of this magnitude, when somebody of this terror, when somebody that has this much power, again, this was the man that those that just killed Stephen, this was the man that they pledged allegiance to. This was the man that they laid their clothes down while they went to do their dirty work, while they went to go throw rocks at Stephen, while they went to go kill that man. They laid their robes, they laid their clothes at the feet of Saul. This was somebody to be feared. This was somebody that had great authority. This was somebody that had great power. And when a man like that finds Christ, big things happen, but big attacks start to happen. Know this, and I know any Christian in this room will say amen. When you see something big done by God in your life, Satan immediately tries to do something just as big, doesn't he? When God tries to make a change, when God tries to send a blessing, when God, he doesn't try, he does. When God does things in your life, whether it be the day he saves you, the day you commit to follow in believer's baptism, the day you try to turn over a new leaf and decide, hey, I'm going to start coming to church, I'm going to bring my family to church, it will be that very day that Satan begins to go on the attack. It will be that very day that the wicked men and the ones that are surrendered to this evil power will be the ones that come against you. So mark it down Christian. Mark it down newly saved. Mark it down one that is just simply in here trying to turn over a new leaf. The moment you make the decision to do something big for Christ, the moment you make the decision to kneel at an altar and say, God, I'm yours. I'll do whatever it is you want me to do. That is when the trials come. That is when Satan's going to attack because the truth of the matter is that if you're doing your own thing like Saul was and if you're elevating yourself and you're holding yourself to this high esteem like Saul was, Satan ain't scared of you. Satan's not worried about you. Why? Because you're not doing anything 
for the cause of Christ. The same on the other hand, God can use somebody that will just do something for God over somebody that's got all the wealth, power, and influence in the world and uses it for the world. God can take a child. God can take a teenager. God can take somebody that nobody expects, nobody sees coming, and do something so magnificent, so huge with them. And that's what we see taking place in the life of Saul. As we talked about on Sermon 1 of this series, how when men were grasping at straws and they knew that they were one disciple down, they were one apostle down, and they had to figure out who that twelfth man was, and they cast lots, and they picked out Matthias. We know that God never intended for that to happen. God never told them to do that. God never asked them to do that. But God had a man. God had a preacher. His name was Saul. That while the world, while the church thought this was the most evil man that had ever walked the earth, while the people of this area would have known that this is the most wicked and most vile man, God said, no, what you don't understand is that's my preacher. That's who I'm going to use. That's who I'm going to use to start hundreds of churches. That's who I'm going to use to write a lot of the New Testament. That's who I'm going to use to write epistles and reprove and rebuke and show the churches exactly who it is that they killed and show the churches exactly who it is. That's the man that I'm going to use. That's the man that I want. And it wasn't who we wanted. It wasn't who the apostles wanted. It wasn't who the church had picked out. It wasn't who the church had set aside. So in the days ahead, we need to be very, very understanding of the fact the man God chooses, the man calls out, is very often the man that we don't see coming. It's very often the man that we don't ever acknowledge what God's going to do in their life. And don't be that person in your seat and in your pew, and this is just the introduction, that I'm just Saul. I'm just wicked. God could never use me. God could never do anything with my life because of my past. God could never do anything in my life because of decisions I've made. God could never do anything in my life because I'm young. God could never do anything in my life because I'm old. God could never do anything with my life because I've messed up, because I've blown it, because I've failed. No, God can use anyone to do anything at any time according to His will, which is everything. And He can do it in a blink of an eye. He can make a change just like He did on the Damascus Road. But watch what happens after this transformation. Watch what happens when Saul decided and God decided you're going to preach. You're going to proclaim Christ to generations after generations. You're going to go to the Jews. You're going to go to the Gentiles and you're going to preach. You're going to lift up the name of Jesus. I know what you've done, Saul. I know your past, Saul, but this is what you're going to do. Watch what happens. Number one, Saul's old friends feared his future. Look in verse number 20. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem? Them which called on his name in Jerusalem and came hither to that intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased the more and streaks and confounded the Jews which dwelt Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days, here it is, were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. These were Saul's Brethren, these were the ones that he would meet with at the synagogue service after service after service. These were the ones that he would have broke bread with. These were the ones that he would have carried out those sacraments and those deeds of the law. These were the ones that he would have carried out those Passover sacrifices. These are the ones that he would have known on a first name basis. These were the men that would have embraced him. These were the men that he would have called his friends. These were the men that he that he would have called his closest companions. And now they are consenting together to what? Kill him. All over what? This decision to follow Christ. You see, Saul made a decision and his friends didn't like it. His friends 
didn't like it. And as a teenager, as a young person, as an old person, a lot of the times we find ourselves on that Damascus road. We find ourselves face to face with our Lord and Savior. We come to the church service. We make the decision to turn over a new leaf. We make the decision to try this or to try that, but we end up in an altar and we realize that turning over a new leaf is not the answer. We realize that trying something new is not the answer. We try, we learn that maybe joining a church or maybe joining a program, we've tried that, but that was not the answer. But when we realize that Christ is the answer, that He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And we come to that decision time and we look around and we start wondering, what will my friends think? Saul had made that decision and his friends decided to kill him. But he made the decision anyway. A lot of us won't even say yes to Jesus because we're afraid a friend might unfriend us on Facebook. Saul's friends were trying to kill him now. Saul's friends were lying in wait, watching the gate, waiting for Saul to make an appearance, waiting for Saul to start trying to preach. They had just killed Stephen. What's anything new about killing Saul? We talked about it last week, how when you become so blinded by religion, when you become so blinded by sin, you're willing to kill anything that speaks the truth. You're willing to kill anything that tells you the truth of the matter. You're willing to kill anything that could attempt to dissuade you from your sinful ways and your sinful belief. And now they had placed their sights on Saul. This this only drove the man more. When you understand that you're not doing this for men, when you understand that you're not witnessing, that you're not praying, that you're not living the Christian life for your friends, everything changes. You see, Saul very quickly and through the inspiration of God realized it's not about them. It's not about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. It's not about the Romans. It's not about them. It's not about them. This is about him. And even though they were trying to kill him, even though they were trying to murder him, he never spoke an ill word out against him. He never stopped and took his eyes off the big picture, took his eyes off the Great Commission. A lot of us in the shoes of Saul, a lot of us in the shoes of this man that had just been saved, the moment we felt a little kickback, the moment we felt somebody trying to disown us or trying to attack us or trying to post about us on Facebook or tweet about us on Twitter or post a nasty quote about us on Instagram or whatever you want to call it, the moment somebody would have opposed us, we would immediately took our our eyes off God, took our eyes off the big picture, and we would have turned around and fired back, wouldn't we? That's not what Saul did. He continued marching forward. He saw the big picture. He understood that this was a given. If they killed Christ, why aren't they going to try to kill me? If they hated Christ, why aren't they going to hate me? If they crucified Christ, why are they going to accept my message? If they denied and they were rejectors of the gospel when God the Son Himself preached it, they're not going to listen to me. But sometimes as Christians, as Anchor of Hope followers, as Jesus followers, the, the one that created this world in existence, we are guilty of seeing somebody attempt to kill us, seeing somebody attempt to hash our name or slash our name, and we take our eyes off the big picture, we take our eyes off the gospel, we take our eyes off the king, we put ourselves on our profile and our page and our Twitter book, whatever you want to call it, and we say, hey, don't be firing at me, don't be saying anything about me, I'm going to fire back at you, I'm going to post back at you, I'm going to tag back at you, and we completely and totally miss the big picture. Meanwhile, the world's sitting there watching, and they're saying, that's a preacher, that's a Christian And they're fighting on Facebook. They're fighting. They're fighting. It's a great platform for God to use. 
But sometimes we just make it a platform for men to abuse. It's a great platform. God can use it. But when somebody clicks your picture, goes to your page, is it about you or is it about Jesus? Is it about a donkey or an elephant or is it about the lamb? Is it about this or is it about that? Or is it about the great commission? Paul didn't let the fact that his old friends feared his future because they weren't scared of Saul and Paul right then. They were scared of what he could become. They were scared of what he could do. That's why they had to kill him. That's why they had to silence him. That's why they had to stop him at all costs. It wasn't because of what had just transpired. You see, the Satan can't do anything about your salvation. Satan can't do anything about God saving you. God, Satan can't do anything about God changing your life and changing your ways. What Satan wants to do, what they wanted to do, is to stop you from doing anything with it. It's to stop you from sharing the love of God. It's to stop you from sharing the love of Christ. And if you are willing to come and just sit in a pew, sulk and sour. You are doing exactly what Satan wants to do and he doesn't even have to kill you. He doesn't even have to threaten you. But Saul, Paul knew that this was going to come, that this was going to be expected, but he kept his eyes on the big picture and he kept marching forward. So we know Saul can't count on his old friends anymore because his old friends feared his future. They feared what he might become. So what's Saul do? Let's look at our text. Then the disciples, the one there in Damascus with him, they took him by night and let him down by the wall in the basket. He wasn't completely alone. He had some disciples there that knew what was going on, and they helped him escape. All right? And when Saul was come to Jerusalem... Now, wait a second. I was taught, you have to look for the things that are there that are not there, but they must be there. All right? If Saul left Damascus, and now he's in Jerusalem, he had to travel, didn't he? He had to walk, didn't he? He couldn't just go call an Uber, hop in the car, ride down the road to Jerusalem... No, he couldn't just hop in a taxi. He couldn't hop on a bus. He couldn't hop on a plane. He was a fugitive. He was on the run. He was somebody that they were trying to assassinate. He was somebody they were trying to stop at all costs. Did you know that the journey that Saul had to make was approximately 200 miles? All right. And if you make that 200-mile journey on foot, and let's say you were able to leave Damascus, and you were able to walk straight to Jerusalem, it would take you three days. If you weren't interrupted, if you didn't have to stop, if you didn't have to eat, if you didn't have to rest, it would take you three days to make that journey. Three days. Now, we know Saul didn't have that pleasantry. He didn't have the ability to just go walking down the sidewalk to Jerusalem. He's a fugitive. He's on the run. He would have had to sneak. He would have had to hide. He would have had to dip, dip and dodge and go this way and zig and zag. How many of you have ever had to zig and zag? If your brother's ever had a BB gun, you know what it is to zig and zag. He would have had to go this way and he would have had to go that way and keep himself from being caught and keep himself from being apprehended. And when he gets to Jerusalem, there's no doubt that he's tired. There's no doubt that he's wore out. He's just walked for at a minimum of three days, maybe longer. Could have been a week, could have been a month. He's just made this journey. Why? Because his old friends were trying to kill him. Because the life he used to live no longer accepted him. Jesus had made a change in his life and now everything has hinged and everything has come to his decision to leave that life, to leave those people, to put them behind, not to forget about them because we know he'd be back to Jerusalem, don't we? We know he'd be back with the message of the gospel. We know he didn't forget about them, but they wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. He had to forget that past 
past. He had to forget those relationships. He had to let God handle them and he had to handle himself and he had to begin walking. And why was he headed to Jerusalem? Because that's where God's people were. That's where the apostles were. That's where Peter, James and John and Matthew. That's where all these guys were. That, that's surely if anybody can help me, surely if anybody can teach me what to do, if anybody can disciple me, God saved me. He's told me to preach. I need to go surround myself with these preachers. I need to go sound, surround myself with these great men. I need to go surround myself in the teaching and the preaching of these great apostles, these great disciples. And many people reach these point where they realize that they need to make a change, that they need to live for God, that they need to repent and trust Christ. But they begin to look around and all their old friends just want them dead. All their old friends are too scared of what they might be, so they don't encourage them. So they begin to take that walk. They begin to take that journey. They begin mile after mile, step after step towards Jerusalem, towards the family of God, towards the people of God, towards the ones that can help them, towards the ones that disciple them. My vision and my dream for Anchor of Hope is to be the place that when people walk in and they're searching and they're grasping and they're just desiring to have somebody that will accept them and to have somebody that will disciple them and to teach them that they come to a place that is willing to do that. That they come to a place that is willing to embrace them and say, I know who you are, but I know who God says you are. You're a child of His. But Paul makes this journey desperately as a fugitive. And what happens when he gets there? Minimum of three days, 200 miles. Verse 26, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Yesterday at work, my boss got some bad news at the phone, over the phone. And as he got that bad news, he said, wow. When you read this verse in the context that it's in, and how the brethren, how the Christians behave, when he said, disciples, I'm here. God saved me. I want to preach with you. And they said, we're afraid of you. I don't believe you. I don't believe God could have changed you. That's what they were saying. God changed me. God saved me. But there's no way He could have saved you. Are we guilty of that? Are we guilty of that loved one that understands and begins to search and begins to head towards Jerusalem? And the moment they, they get to you, they essay to join themselves to you. They essay to say, I want what you have. I want the relationship with Christ you're always telling me about. I want to go to church because you like to go. I, I want to be a part of this. Will you please disciple me? Will you please teach me? Will you please show me the way we say, you? That's what they did here. Don't miss this. That's what they did. So his old friends wanted to kill him because they feared his future. The new friends... Rejected him because they feared who he was right then and there, his present. We see a, a complete and total rejection of this man. Now, as I do in every sermon, put yourself in Saul's shoes. Put yourself in his shoes right here. His shoes probably would have been wore slap off his feet after walking that far. He would have been starving to death. All right. The modern term that we use in our household is hangry. Right, when you're hungry and angry in one sentence. He would have been there. He would have been wore out. He would have been tired. He had been looking for some water. He had been looking for some food. He's a fugitive. He's on the run. 
And he gets to the house of God. He gets to the place where the apostles were gathered. He gets to Peter, James, and John. It doesn't name them, but he gets to the apostles. He gets to the ones that are there in Jerusalem. And he says, I've been saved. Help me. Teach me. Show me. I want to be used. I want to live for God. And they reject him. Now put yourself right there in those shoes. What would we do? Some of us have done it. I'm never setting foot in that place again. And in man's way, he had every right to make that decision. But again, he saw the big picture. He saw, because right here, there and then, we know Saul didn't back up. We know Saul didn't throw his hands up. We didn't know, we know Saul didn't march right back to the Sanhedrin and said, guys, I know where they're at. Go kill them. They rejected me. Their God's not real. Their faith's not real. Nothing about them is real. They're hypocrites. They're not genuine. There they are, right there in Jerusalem. Go arrest them. Go kill them. Saul had that decision to make here, and we know he didn't make it. Why? Because he saw the big picture. Because he saw past men. He saw a group of men that while they were rejecting him, he already knew that there was a God in heaven who had embraced him. That there was a God in heaven who loved him. That there was a God in heaven who wanted to use him. And if you're here today, and you've been hurt, hurt by the church of the living God. You've been hurt by those religious people like the preacher or the deacon or the disciple or whatever it may be. If Peter could hurt somebody, if John could or James could hurt somebody, we can hurt somebody. We can fail people. We can make mistakes. But if you're here today and you've been hurt, you've been churched, you are the one sitting here questioning, is church for me? Is this what I really want? Is this what I'm really looking for? Is this the answer? Let me tell you this. What you are looking for is not in this building. It is not in this pews. It is not under this roof. It is not within these four walls. It is the King of kings and it is the Lord of lords. And He died for you and He loves you and He wants to save you this morning. He wants to take you under His wing. But God will use a Christian like He did in the next verse. His old friends feared his future. His new friends feared his present. But his true friend forgave his past. Look at verse number 27. But Barnabas, though he was just a man, never heard his name spoke up until now. It was just a guy, a layman, a follower of Jesus Christ. He may not have been there when Jesus walked on the water. He may not have been there when Jesus fed the 5,000. He could have been. I'm not going to say he wasn't. But he may not have been there when he may not have got to see all the things those apostles got to see. But right here in verse 27 of your Bibles, his faith was greater than all those apostles put together. Because we see in verse number 27, he was willing to do something that many of us have had the opportunity to do, but we didn't. He was willing to do something that all those apostles had the opportunity to do, but he didn't. What was it? What did he do? Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus the name of Jesus. Watch what's taking place. Watch what's taking place here. No doubt Saul standing there, defeated. And in his heart, Satan begins to raise those seeds of doubt. In his heart, Satan begins to raise those temptations of anger and to raise those temptations of rage and to raise those temptations of rejection and hypocrisy. And Saul's sitting there 
boiling. Saul's probably sitting there so mad, so tired, so hungry, so wore out. And this is, don't forget, don't let it slip your mind that this is the man who wrote much of your New Testament. This is the man who God would use to go on missionary journeys and to start churches all over the Far East and all over the Middle East. And his ministry and what he would do and what God would use him to do is probably the reason we're sitting here today. It's probably the reason that America's got the gospel was because of the ministry that Paul led and the ministry that Paul was called to do. And right here in this moment, there's a chance, there's a maybe on the inside of Saul's heart, on the inside of Paul's heart that it could all stop. Right there. But somebody who was nobody, absolutely nobody, came and just took him. He took him. And he said, come on. He walked him in. Doesn't say Saul said anything else. But Barnabas looked at those apostles and declared unto him, now watch this. You Church, you may not know this man, but he owns such and such business and such and such on such and such street, and his bank account is this big. No, that's not what he said, did he? You may not know this man, or you may not believe this man, but you see, he he drives of this, and his house is in this neighborhood, and this you, you ought to accept this man. Nope. What did he declare to the apostles? What did he declare to the apostles? The only thing he needed to. Watch what he says in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord. Church, attention, apostles, attention, this man knows Jesus. That's it. That's all he had to say. That's all he had to declare. That's all that needed to be said. And those apostles rejected it the first time they heard it out of Saul's mouth. But now that Barnabas was saying it, now that there was somebody to mediate, now that there was somebody to stand by him and say, hey, I'm not here to brag about Saul. I'm not here to brag about Paul. I'm not here to brag about a man. I'm not here to brag about myself. I'm not here to brag on you, Peter. I'm not here to brag about you, James. I'm not here to brag about you, John. We know what you've done. Well, that's all well and good, but I'm here to tell you what Jesus did. I'm here to tell you what Jesus did for this man. And we ought to accept him. We ought to usher him in. Why? Because Jesus loves him. God loves him. God sent his son to die for him. And that's the only reason that is necessary. But if it wasn't for Barnabas, some of that may have never got said. If it wasn't for Barnabas, Paul could have turned around and walked away right there. He didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. Barnabas did what we can do today. And how he had preached boldly in Damascus the name of Jesus. If we ever brag on a preacher, and we should brag on preachers, they work hard, they study hard, they carry many burdens. But it ought to be because of how they preach Jesus. It ought to be because how they point to the Savior. Because that is what they've been called to do. That is what they've been called to do. You know what Barnabas was doing here? He was saying, "What, brethren, what more do you need to preach Jesus than simply wanting to? What do you need to share Christ with somebody? What more do you need to share Christ with somebody than just simply telling the Lord you will? But it took a man who was nobody to go to a bunch of somebodies and say, hey, y'all not see what God's done in this man? Do y'all not see what God can do with this man? Do y'all not see who this man is? 
He's a child of the king. And look how you're treating him. How was he able to do that? How was he able to do that? Don't you wish, some of you in here, all of us in here, don't you wish we had a friend like Barnabas in certain times in our life? When the whole family was down on us? When the whole church was against us? When it felt like nobody cared about what you were going through. Nobody saw you in your dark hour. Nobody cared about the failures. and the. And you understood that you messed up. You understood that your past was not very good. You understood that the things that you had done were not very well liked. You understood that you had failed and you had messed up, but you looked to your right and you looked to your left and the Barnabas wasn't there. There was nobody there to wrap their arm around you and take you and declare under the brethren, to declare under God, hey, God's got you. God's going to do big things with you. God is not dependent on what your abilities are. God is only dependent on His abilities and He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing and He can still use you. He still has a plan for you. Don't you wish you had a friend like Barnabas? Can I tell you that you do? Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2. Let's turn there. It's worth reading. It's all worth reading. Ephesians chapter number 2. Verse number 1. Y'all know who's writing this here? Paul. Maybe a couple years... Later, Paul sits down and he writes these words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Christ, according to He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated unto the adoption. I'm reading in chapter number 1. Verse number, chapter number 2, 1 through 5. I'm sorry, church. I kept waiting on it, and it wasn't coming. I was like, I'm reading in the wrong place. Ephesians chapter number 2, verse number 1. And you, again, who's talking? Paul. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the course of this world according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Whoa, wait a second. Verse number four. Say those two words with me. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath He quickened us together with Christ by grace, Ye are saved. Verse number four again, those first two words. But God, God commended His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You know who Barnabas was like here? Jesus Christ Himself. Being willing to look at a man who had a past. Being able to look at a man who had problems. Being able to look at a man who had failed, who had messed up, who had made horrible decisions, and just simply take them, just simply to speak up for them. Do you realize that you may be in the sanctuary looking for such a man, and Christ is staring you straight in the face, offer, offering that? Christ is saying, nobody else will speak for you. Nobody else will speak out for you. Nobody else will speak up for you. Your old friends, they, they could care less about you. 
It looks on the outside that this church, this, this idea of religion, that, that, that it's, it's failed you, it's let you down. Do you realize Christ is just saying, but God, who is rich in mercy, forgives you, loves you. You see, I titled this message, But Barnabas, because that's what we're asking in the book of Acts. But Barnabas, Barnabas was, was Jesus here. Barnabas was the picture of Christ that you see on every page. Barnabas was the one that you and I should be. You see, because what did Barnabas just show? What does Jesus just show? That He knows your future. That when all those Jews, Jews and all those Sadducees and all those Pharisees and all those negative influences and all those friends, when they're afraid of your future, when they're afraid of what you might do, when they're afraid of what you might say, God knows your future. God knows your final destination. God knows exactly what He has planned for you. God knows exactly what He wants to do with you. God has no questions. Nothing is going to catch Him off guard. Nothing is going to catch Him by surprise. God has your future in the palm of His hand, but it gets better than that. How could it possibly get better than that? Why? Because He forgives your present while we were yet sinners. In the very act of sinning, in the very act of trespassing, in the very act of committing those iniquities, in the very act of all those wicked and demonic and terrible things, in that very act, He loves you anyway. But it gets better. How in the world could he get better than that? Well, he forgets your past. He says, the, cat, the sinner's cast as far as the east is from the west. And I remember them no more. If you're a husband in here, you pray every day that your wife will remember that verse. That's how good God is. That's how good God is. He doesn't even remember your past if you've accepted Christ. What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. But it gets better than that. How in the world could it be better than Jesus holding your future? How in the world could it be better than Jesus forgiving your present? How in the world that he, could it be better than Jesus forgetting your past? How in the world could it be better than any of those things? This gospel that you're talking about, there's no way it could be better than that. That's all I'm looking for. How in the world could it be better? Jesus will always be there by your side. He doesn't just forgive you and walk away. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that's where Barnabas is so critical. That's where the life of Barnabas is so critical because when we see Paul used in the days ahead and he set out, separate unto me Barnabas to go with me on this mission trip. When Paul began to do the great works and the great things for God, when Paul began to travel, when Paul began to preach, he wanted the man that stood by him when he was nobody. He wanted the man that stood by him when he had nothing to give. He wanted the man that stood by him when everybody pushed away. Barnabas was with Paul every step of the way. Every time Paul was persecuted, you know who was there? Barnabas. Every time Paul was stoned, you know who was there? Barnabas. Every time Paul was cast into prison, you know who was there? Barnabas. Barnabas became Paul's right-hand man, and Jesus will do the same for you. And he's not the one that wants to come and to be your pal and to be your buddy. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your Savior. He wants to guide your life. He wants to exercise His will and loving you and showing you His grace day in and day out. And a lot of us wish we just had somebody like Barnabas, but there's someone better as Miss Joy comes to play. How many of you know where Saul was standing? How many of you know where he was standing? You've experienced the hate. You've experienced the rejection. You've experienced the family turning their back on you. You've experienced the, even worse, the church rejecting you. The church being afraid of you. The church saying, we don't believe it. Prove it. 
We don't believe it. Prove it. You may be in here today and you've experienced those pains. And if, I, if one of us was on, every one of us was honest, we'd all say we've experienced that. We've experienced that rejection that men tend to do, that women tend to do. Can I tell you, as she begins to play, that there's somebody like Barnabas, or rather Barnabas is like somebody that's here right now. Maybe you've just been trying to walk all by yourself and you forgot that you left Barnabas back at the house. You forgot that you left Barnabas back at the church and you leave him here and you go work throughout the week and you're wondering why you're struggling. Maybe it's because the one who was willing to go with you every step of the way, you looked at and you said, you just stay here. I'll handle this. Standing all over the house. Maybe you're your Savior, maybe the sweet Lamb of God misses you. Maybe it's been a while since you've just curled up in His lap. You said, thank you for being my Barnabas. Thank you for being the one that loved me when nobody else loved me. Thank you for being the one that forgave my past. Thank you for being the one that didn't fear my present. Thank you for being the one that holds my future. When was the last time you thanked Him? When was the last time you came to an altar and said, hey, are you still there? I've missed you. I've missed you. I'd like to start going to the places you'd have me to go again. But you may be in here today. You may be seeking to distract. You may be seeking to dodge. You may be seeking. But you know you're standing right where Saul was. And you're looking for something. And I tell you, he's looking for you. I tell you, he loves you. No matter if you've been in the church 10 minutes, 10 years, 100 years. He loves you. As I pray, if you need to come, you come. Father, thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You that we can look and we can see men like Barnabas. Just regular men. God, help us to see that we can all be a Barnabas. Help us to see that we can all be like You. God, in a day where the world is pointing their finger at a race, where the world is pointing their finger at a nationality, where the world is pointing their finger at a church. Help us to not point the finger back. Help us to not throw the stones. Help us to not fall into the trap of the devil to fuss and to fight. But God, help us to be like Barnabas and see the people around us, see the children around us, see the mothers and the fathers and the families around us like you see them as souls in the hands of an angry God, as souls that need salvation, as souls that just need somebody to forgive them, that need somebody to, to love them. God, help us to realize that many of our neighbors, many of our family members, they may never come to church, they may never get saved, they may never hear the gospel, because we're not willing to be like Barnabas. God, I pray that you burn our hearts as you burnt mine. Help us to see Christ through this man. God, bring us back to your house tonight. You've got big things planned, God. I know you do. God, I pray and I thank you for each and every member of this church. What a blessing they've been to my family. Thank you so much for what you're doing at Anchor of Hope Baptist Church. We know you're doing it. And we'll give you all the honor and the glory for it. I ask and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Um, the deacons need to make any announcements.
Nope. Okay. Good. You can stand back up. We'll be dismissed. <laughs> Amen. The one Sunday, I remember it, y'all. All right. I got you. I got you. Y'all, we'll see you tonight, 5 o'clock. Come ready to have church.